0: This is episode number 343, Perspective Shifting from Hospice and Bikepacking the World with Jerry Kopach. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia.
1: This need for control, there's this point where you have to just sort of relax your grip because if you don't, it's just going to burn you out. And we can't control things that happen to us on the most day-to-day basis. The only thing we have control over, as you probably know, is how do you respond? And when life kind of throws you down, yanks the rug out from you, how do you get up? How do you decide how you're going to respond? How resilient are you?
0: I love today's podcast because it's about adventures all over the world and the courage to go after them. But first, I want to remind you about a former podcast guest that we had on, Karina Hamill. And we talked about her company, Bivo, where she founded a stainless steel bike water bottle company. I was super excited whenever I learned about Bivo because that meant that I didn't have to use plastic bike water bottles anymore and also the grossness that comes with them. Grossness is a technical term, but I'm referring to the taste of using a plastic bike water bottle and that black mold that is almost impossible to get out. Bivo bottles are sustainable, they are dishwasher safe, and they have great taste. The amazing thing about these bottles is that they have gravity-assisted flow designed by a NASA engineer. And you might be wondering, well, I can't squeeze the bottle to get the drink out, so how does the water or the sports drink actually come out? Well, when you tilt the bottle, a great amount of water comes out, and not this low flow business that you get from some of the bike water bottles, but a great amount of water that helps quench your thirst. Bivo is also a carbon neutral company. So, if you've been thinking about switching to stainless steel for your bike water bottles, and these are super lightweight and they have a universal cage fit, they don't rattle around, I highly recommend going to drinkbivo.com, that is D R I N K B I V O.com, and check out their bottles. They have really fun colors. There also is a limited edition collaboration that I did with them with the effing magical unicorn on a bottle. So go to drinkbivo.com. You'll see me using these not only on my bike, but pretty much everywhere. They have a free shipping code for us for US customers. That is Sonia Looney underscore free ground. That is capital S-O-N-Y-A capital L-O-O-N-E-Y underscore free ground. I realize that's a bit of a mouthful, so make sure you go to the show notes on my website and also check out the Effing Magical Unicorn Bottle collaboration that we did that comes in a minty green. There's something else I want to tell you about because strength and mobility training is something that I tend to skip. (laughs) And I know that I shouldn't be skipping it, but it's always so hard to do it. And I never know exactly what I should be doing or if it's even working. And I discovered Ever Athlete last year, which is a both in-person and online training platform for endurance athletes. They have specifically designed progressive programs for cycling, for running, for swimming, and even for postpartum that include both stability and strength. Since signing up for the EverAthlete platform, I have been the most consistent I have ever been with my strength and mobility, and I even have fun when doing these workouts. Imagine having fun doing strength and mobility workouts. I reached out to Dr. Matt Smith to have him on the podcast because I think that this is such important information and stay tuned for a future episode with him. athlete also has injury rehabilitation programs and everything is designed by physical therapists, sports chiropractors, and coaches. And whenever I do their programs, I actually kind of laugh to myself because these are things that have been prescribed by said physical therapists, chiropractors, and coaches that I've gone to telling me that I need to do these things to be my best. But for whatever reason, I I just couldn't motivate myself to do it until I got EverAthlete. If you want to give it a try for yourself, you can use the code LOONEY, L-O-O-N-E-Y in all caps for 25% off your first three months of training. It's super affordable. And as I mentioned, super fun. And there's so much great information to be had. It's time for us to take our performance in sport and also our longevity in sport to the next level. So go to everathlete.fit and check it out for yourself. All right. So back to talking about today's awesome podcast episode, Jerry Kopak started his career in the corporate world, but at the age of 31, he completely shifted his career and opened a hospice in Colorado with his mom. The perspective changing experience led him to begin traveling the world and being open to new opportunities. A lot of us don't have to face death every single day like he had to and think about death every single day, but that was really powerful for him. His biking adventures began in Africa and continued on to India, Nepal, Israel, and many more places. He learned about the beauty of the world and of people and wrote about his journey in his new book called The World Spins By. And it's a beautiful book. I highly recommend picking it up. In this episode, we talk about Jerry's key lessons from working in hospice, his mindset shift that led to traveling the world, the amazing global biking community, and so much more. We had some major takeaways today, like the value of time and shifting identity, the importance of contemplating death, how to have more flexibility and not be as controlling over everything. And that is a personal lesson I'm always working on. We also talked about visions of what success and happiness mean, and what traveling on a bike entails in less developed countries. So today is super interesting. We covered a lot of different information. And I sincerely hope that you enjoyed this chat I had with Jerry Kopak. Hey, Jerry, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Sonia. Great to be here.
0: We were just chatting. And then I said, wait, like, stop talking. I got to hit record because (laughs) you're already like going straight in. And this is this is stuff people need to hear. So what I asked you was... How did it feel to hold the book, the hard copy of your book in your hand for the very first time?
1: Ah, oh, wow. Uh, I get emotional just thinking back about it. I've had it now for a week and it was just this labor of love, this sense of pride and it, it was emotional. I actually teared up and And I wasn't one of those guys who as a kid wanted to be a writer. I didn't dream about writing. I dreamed about being an athlete. I wanted to play professional soccer which that didn't exist in the 80s and 90s and then as a short uh, caucasian kid in michigan i wasn't going to play basketball so <laughs> yeah it uh, the writing was was nowhere near the periphery of my imagination
0: so interesting how as life spins by and your book is called as the world spins or the world spins by as life spins by how opportunities just open for us when we follow our curiosity and it really sounds like that has truly impacted your life in a really big way.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess I should go back and give you a little background. I I was following this sort of laminated roadmap to success that so many people have uh, to success and happiness. You know, you go to school, you get a good job, you you buy a house, you meet the girl or the guy, whoever, and everything's supposed to fall into place. And it just, it didn't play out that way. And through a series of life changing events, after working in, in corporate America for a decade, I was 31 years old and already kind of feeling that my vision of what success and happiness wasn't coming to be. And so my mom was also going through a little bit of a, of a job crisis. And she called me up one day from Mexico and I answered the phone and before I could even say anything, she said, Jerry, I know what I want to do. How and old was your mom? So the time, so she's 28 years older than me. So she would have been 60, 59 at the time. Mm-hmm. So just about 60. And she calls me up and she's on vacation out of Mexico with her husband. And she says, I know what I want to do. She says, I, I want to start a hospice in Boulder. And for those of you who know me, I have a bit of a of a dry, sarcastic, sometimes snarky sense of humor. And in my 31 years of age, my snarky tone, I replied back simply, ah, I don't know that I want to run a, a place where people come and sleep in dorms and trash the rooms and, and leave. And she's like, What? No, that's a hostel. I'm talking about a hospice. What? What's a hospice? You know, at 31, I was doing this corporate gig and I had no idea what a hospice was or what caring for people end of life had any entail. And so she came back from Mexico. We talked and three months later we launched a hospice in Colorado and it was the single most impactful decision of my entire life.
0: Did you decide to do that? Because as you mentioned, you were, you had this corporate job and this is kind of an idea out of left field and something you had never heard of before. What, what made you decide I'm going to walk away from this known quantity and into this unknown quantity?
1: Ah, that's a great question. To be honest, I, I just wanted to support my mom. She had this passion about a hospice, and then I could just feel it almost dripping through the foam and from Mexico mm. when she was talking to me. And so my whole inclination was just to stay the path. I was 31. I was I was making progress in life, and I just wanted to support her. And I thought this would be sort of, I would do something on the side. And then the further I got into my career over the next year, the more disenchanted, disenfranchised I became. And at one point, I just said, I think I'm ready. If I'm ever going to think of this as anything more than than an aside business or support my mom, then I probably need to, to jump in with both feet.
0: And I imagine, I mean, maybe this wasn't part of the thought process then, but even now thinking back on it, you probably had a, an identity that was Firmly rooted in, you know, I'm this successful business person type of role, and then, you know, changing into working in hospice—that's a very different identity. How did you try that uh, that new identity on for size, and how did that feel?
1: That is a great question. Yeah, so 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 I went to to business school, and for people of a certain age, they may have remembered the movie called Wall Street with Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen, and I swear everybody in my class knew that movie inside and Mm -hmm. out. And we all thought that that was the life that we wanted to lead, to be bankers. And I went so far as to gain a job at the Federal Reserve in Denver. It was my first job out of college. And I remember just not loving it after the first month. And so at the end of my first year, I'm meeting with my, my supervisor and we're going through reflecting on the year that was and setting goals for the coming year. And I'm trying to come up with some idea, some semblance of, of fake interest of all the things I wanted to accomplish in the next one to three years with the Federal Reserve. And as I start to put out my pitch, before I even get through my first sentence, he, he stops me and says, yeah, because you know what? We don't really see this as a good fit for you. And it was so funny mm-hmm. because I was getting ready to break up with him and he sort of beat me to the punch. And so <laughs> hey this when was that happens. <laughs> i know right it's like no wait i'm breaking up with you no sorry <laughs> i'm breaking up with you and so it was at that point where i'm starting to think like maybe this banking thing just isn't what i thought it was going to be and it's not really want to do because i don't know a lot of people have been in positions in their career where for me personally i felt like no matter how many hours how many more days however much effort however much blood i gave to this job it didn't matter it didn't make an impact on someone's life And when this whole concept of hospice came about with my mom, it just felt like I can finally make a difference in someone's life. And that was actually one of the models we had around the office is that every day is an opportunity to improve someone's life. And so to be a 31 and then soon after 33, 35 year old person, people would ask me, how does someone your age get into to this role? And I, I, I would just simply say, I'm just lucky, I guess. I, I get to have a positive impact on someone's life every day. So I'm very fortunate.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, once you started working in hospice and seeing people at end of life and seeing what people, you know, wish that they would have done in their life or how they spent their time, I'm sure that, that also helped validate that decision that you made of, hey, I'm kind of soulless in this job here. There's no meaning or purpose behind it to this very purpose driven career and, and uh, you know, pathway.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was interesting because it's inevitable that you form relationships with, with your patients along the way. And so there was one patient that we had, one of our first patients, and she was 95. She lived in the mountains in this old homestead that her father had built. And she had lived there ever since she was a little girl. And it was just, it was fascinating to to sit with her and recount stories of what Boulder used to be like in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And it was just, it was fascinating. And just to have her share stories. And of course, it was tragic when she eventually did pass, but I could take some comfort in the mentality that she had a good life. She lived to be 95. She was doing what she wanted to, and she was happy. And it wasn't until I had a close friend die at the age of 45 of breast cancer that I finally it, it finally hit me. And I realized that, okay, this whole mindset of we're going to work hard until we're 65 and then we'll start living our best life, that opportunity might not come. Tomorrow's not promised. And a friend of mine had paraphrased this uh, this quote to me, and, and it's really loosely paraphrased. I think it might've been from Alan Watts, but it simply goes, we don't go to the concert just to hear the encore. And that simply means like, you know, we want to hear the whole show. We want to live fully every day, not just when we have the time to later in life.
0: Yeah, that's such a great quote. And I'm curious to hear other lessons or other wake up calls that you had while working in this environment, because most people have not spent time around people who are, you know, in their last days of life and have experienced loss, like whether it's of a really good friend, and I'm sorry about the loss of your really good friend, or you know, loss of an acquaintance or a, as a caretaker of somebody. So, what are some other lessons that are in there for you? Uh,
1: yeah, so I, I can answer that with a story that really put it all in perspective to me. And it's something that I remember almost every day. And so I was, I've, I've been bike racing on an amateur level. I know that you have a, a long history of bike racing as well. And it was the fall, probably September, October in Colorado, the weather was nasty. And I was coming back from a cyclocross race and I was coming in to make dinner. I was shivering. I was cold and I was wet it had been raining sideways at 38 degrees. And, and that's just how cyclocross works. But I took out a sweet potato and I started to aerate it before I put it in the microwave. And most people would use a fork to poke holes in it. I, for some reason, chose a butter knife. So as I'm stabbing down this potato, my hands are slippery. My hand slips down the handle and the the, the crease of my pinky finger slides across the this very blunt side of the butter knife and it cuts the tendon in my finger. And so I was working in the hospice, so I had friends over at the emergency room in, in Boulder. And I said, hey, uh, this is Jerry. I just think I just cut my finger. I'm going to come in for a stitch. So I wrap it up and I drive over to the emergency room. And the doctor pulls up or walks up and he's a friend of mine. He's like, hey, it's so like you got a cut there and we'll see you tomorrow morning for, for surgery. And I said, surgery? What are you talking about? It's just a little stitch. It's a cut. He's like, no, you, you cut your tendon. And if you ever want to be able to bend that finger again, you we will see you tomorrow morning. And you know, you're 33 or 34 years old, I think this is probably the right choice for you. And so you know, flash forward, I'm in this this splint, um, my hand completely immobilized, can't eat with that right hand can't type can't drive my car for sure can't ride a bike can't do anything. And I remember I'm coming to work every day for the next six, eight weeks, and I'm just kind of wallowing in my own self pity. And my mom looks at me I and mean, she's seen this this nonsense, this this absurdity of me for the past month, and she pulls me aside. And if you know my mom, one of her favorite sayings is, what is wrong with you? And it's like, well, mom, you know, I I cut my finger and I can't do this. She's like, yeah, I know. Look around you. Where do you work? People are dying all around you. In fact, so-and-so, one of our staff, just got diagnosed with breast cancer for the second time. So knock it off. And that was just this lesson in humility and perspective that I've never forgotten ever since. And so we we get so caught up in these our own myopic uh, world and perspectives that we forget that there's something else going on out there that's bigger than us. And I read this quote a while ago, and it goes something like, frame every so-called disaster or perceived disaster as Will this matter in five days, five months, five weeks, five years? And it's it's kind of like when you are looking at a topo map of a trail or of a route, and this next hill in front of you looks gigantic and and sinister that you don't want to climb it. But then you zoom way out on a larger scale, and it's but a blip. And it's so it's that whole concept of keeping things in perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the perspective taking and the big picture thinking... I think during the pandemic, people had to do that for sure, because if you got so focused on just one thing, it could be completely overwhelming of all the bad things happening right now. But then there's also the perspective of the big picture and the unknown. Like, oh, I'm zooming out so far, but I don't know what the the big picture looks like. I don't know what's going to be in the long-term future. And I want to come back to that idea in a second. But I wanted to actually go back to the hospice and I wanted to ask you about how you deal with grieving because i think a lot of people are afraid of death they're afraid to be around death they're afraid of their own death and you know contemplating your own death is something that i try to do on a daily basis for you you know how have you dealt with seeing death up front and you know front a front seat to this in a lot of cases
1: yeah wow that's that's a great question and a heavy question it's um there's, there's different situations. It's like I met, mentioned earlier with our, our first patient and subsequent patients since then. You, you form these connections with people, and you know that this, this day is coming. And so you try to open your heart as much as you can. At the same time, it's, it's scary to open your heart too much because it's, you know it's going to hurt. Um, the same thing happened with, say, my friend Cynthia, who, who died of breast cancer. Yeah, there's, there's not really any way to prepare for it other than, than to just make the most of every day. And so, for example, I'll tell another personal story here. So my dad and my mom got divorced when I was four. They both have been remarried for about 35 years. And last year, my dad's wife, again, of 35 years, um, he was, she was sitting on a couch and he went outside in Michigan to shovel snow came back 20 minutes later, and she had had a heart attack and she had died. And so that was horrible because he never had the chance to say anything that he may have wanted to say. Uh, And then I look at on the other side, my mom recently got diagnosed almost two years ago with pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And so that's really heavy, but we both worked in hospice together. So we've been able to have really transparent conversations of of what this process looks like and at the same time i guess from my own selfish perspective if i was gonna say would i rather lose a loved one in the blink of an eye or over time i would take over time because i've had the most amazing conversations and time spent with my mom over the last two years so it's been really really wonderful even though i know that there's there's a date out there sometime but I get to live every day with her and just share all these special occasions with her.
0: Yeah, there's so much. I mean, we could record an entire podcast probably talking about death. And um, again, it's like a topic that I think a lot of people tend to avoid. I wanna ask you actually so, a lot of us, everyone has an expiration date. We just don't know when that is. And when somebody's diagnosed with a disease, it becomes more clear when that expiration date might happen. So, if you are talking with a loved one like your mom, and you said you've had these amazing conversations. What type of questions come to mind that wouldn't have come to que- come to light otherwise if you didn't have this expiration date?
1: Wow, that wow, good one.
0: <laughs> I'm just <Yes>. curious.
1: <laughs> so, so we, we had this uh, this kind of tongue in cheek uh, ex- expression around the hospice that essentially everyone is terminal, and that kind of goes back to the point that you made. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's this week, whether it's ten years from now, fifty years, we're all terminal. And so some of the conversations we've had have have just been listening to her childhood, her growing up, her experiences, her fears. um, Where is she at, at right now? And it's, it's, I have four brothers and I know that she has different conversations with each of us. And I know my two older brothers they don't have these kind of conversations about, okay, well, when it gets to this time, this is what it's going to look like. Whereas my mom and I, we, we've shared this hospice experience together, having run the hospice together, that we actually have these conversations and it's, it's nice in a certain way. Like it's not, a, it's not pleasant, but it's knowing that we can be this open with one another to, to share fears and to share anxiety. Whereas I think with my other brothers, she has more of a guarded approach. Mm-hmm. Because I think that she's trying to almost protect them.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: she has to do that with me because we've had that shared experience. And so it's it's been really nice just having that level of, of interaction. And then, of course, like I mentioned before, just all those old memories that we've shared together. Like, So when she was 60 years old, my mom has been a cyclist and a cross-country skier for a, a number of years. And you're, you've spent time in Boulder. And so for her 60th birthday a number of years ago, uh, we went and cycled up. Flagstaff Road on her bike, which was a fantastic ride. And so we always look back at pictures of that and just fondly reminisce about those memories.
0: Yeah. Again, I'm really sorry about your mom. And I think that that is probably really meaningful to her to be able to be, feel seen and be herself through this really, you know, really, really hard time um, in a way that she probably can't with anybody else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's been helpful and therapeutic for her. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine going through what she's going through, but it, I, I would like to believe that it'd be so comforting to know that I have someone that I can talk to. And I know that mm-hmm. she is she's married and her husband is there for as well, but parents have different relationships with their spouse than they do with their children. And mm-hmm. so it's, she probably shares things with him that she doesn't share with me and, and vice versa. So it, it, it feels very gratifying that I can be that person for her. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so I'm going to make it a little bit lighter now for everybody and <laughs> so you know, we're talking about the value of time. We're talking about we're talking about death because death gives time meaning. You talked about making the most of every day and how that is meaningful and how your friend Cynthia that, who passed away, that was a wake-up call for you. So, what was that wake-up call and what did you do after you had that?
1: Yeah, so this this happens a few months before my mom decided that she wanted to retire from hospice and we were going to separate. And so the hospice had been my identity. So again, I went to business school thinking this is going to be my identity. And then after 10 years, the hospice had definitely been my identity. And Cynthia had passed. And then this happens. And while while it was the best thing for us to separate from hospice, it still was was really difficult to step away after 10 years of doing something, and that's all you ever knew. And so I, I got on a bike, and I had a friend down in Africa who said, hey, come down and visit me. And I'd been in corporate America and then running the hospice for, I don't know, almost 20 years total. I'd never taken more than two weeks off of work ever. And so I had this sort of gift of time. And so I got on my bike and I went down to visit my friend in Zambia. And from there I met somebody who said you should go to Zimbabwe. And from Zimbabwe, I went to Madagascar. And then I was in Madagascar, about ready to fly home to the US after being gone for probably a month or so. This woman was from India and she met me in the airport in Madagascar. And she said, after hearing your stories, you should go to India. And I thought, okay, I should go to India. And from India, I just kept going, India and then into Nepal. And at this point, it had been probably two months of just traveling and not having a job. And that was by far the, the, the most freeing time I've ever had in my life. My job every day was to get up and ride my bike and just explore. And so I'd gotten back to Kathmandu and was going to get on a plane probably the next couple of days. And I met this Swiss couple. And this Swiss couple was also bike touring. And so we had dinner one night and we started talking about all the places they had been, all the places I had been. And they said, hey, so what are you doing next week? And I said, well, I've been gone for for almost two months. I'm probably going to head back to Colorado. And Evo, the husband, says to me, it's like two months. he have been gone for two years. And I thought, what? How can somebody be traveling on a bicycle for two years? Like this was unheard of in, in, my, in my world. I said, wow. Um, yeah, I. What was the question? And he just came back and he's like, So, what are you doing next week? Besides the fact that you think you're going home after two months, what are you going home to? And I thought, I, I don't know. Do you have a job? No. And it was the first time in my career I haven't had a job. So, it felt weird to say that. And he continued on with his barrage of questions. Mm-hmm. Are you married? No. Do you have children? No. Do you have a dog? No. Anything else? No. Let me ask you again. Why are you going home? And I thought to myself, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. And it was this. It was the first time in my life where I thought, like, I I don't really know what I'm doing. And he said, Why don't you come with us? We're gonna ride through the rest of Nepal into Northeast India, Thailand, China, and Eastern Tibet. And I thought, Wow, I've known you for an hour and a half. What's the worst that could happen? Right? We're all on our bikes, (laughs) and if it doesn't work out, we travel at different speeds. We don't laugh at each other's jokes. We just go a different way. And along this whole time, I had been traveling with this mindset, living with this mindset to to always say yes. And as a, a type A competitive corporate guy, it's it's so easy to think that I can control everything. And it's easy to say no, because that gives us this semblance of control. But I had learned that even as willful or resilient as you think you are, you can't control everything. Like I couldn't control what happened to my friend. I couldn't control so many other things that, that happened to me along the way. So I started just to travel with this mindset to always say yes. And I thought to myself, if I am really living this mentality, then the only answer is to say yes and to keep going and travel with these guys and see what happens.
0: Yeah. I mean... The power of asking questions and then being able to honestly answer them for yourself is sounds like it's so powerful when that guy asks you the why question. And a lot of times, you know, people ask us a question that we just never even thought to even ask ourselves. And then the answer, like what happened to you, can change your life. But in order to do that, you have to be open and, like you said, let go of control here. And initially it sounds like the first question was you know okay where where am I going to go to start and you went to Zimbabwe is that what you
1: so Zambia first Zambia and
0: you know even most people would say oh Zambia like I I don't want to go like how did you decide that that was okay for you to go there when previously you know the life that you had built up was about you know being in competition and on the bike Uh and also being in control
1: (laughs) yeah it. uh it was a little nerve wracking. I had done some other bike tours. I had biked toured for like a week at a time, one time through, through Vietnam, which was nerve wracking another time through Spain. But in my mind, Africa just seems like way, way outside of my comfort zone. You, you, you read national geographic, you read, T- you watch TV shows, talk about all the things that happen, the different diseases and different afflictions. And the lack of clean water and sanitation, it scared the heck out of me. But Mm -hmm. I had a friend from high school who was working for the CDC, the Center for Disease Control down in Zambia, and he had three kids. And so for whatever reason, that rationalization, I thought, okay, well, if my friend is down there with his family and he's living there, I'll probably be okay. But I definitely was, was for sure worried about malaria and other things that can happen to you in Africa. And so when I got to Africa, he's, he's asking me, so, Hey, have you had all these different shots? It's like, yeah, of course. And he's like, what about your rabies? I was like, no, I never thought about getting a rabies. Like, well, you know, it's just one of those other things that can kill you down here. And he said it very jokingly like, Oh, okay. And so I was like, well, how do I get a rabies vaccination? And so it turns out that you can walk into the local pharmacy and for a series of three shots at $30 each, which you administer yourself, (laughs) uh, you can be fully vaccinated. And so I, I went and got the first dose, and I called up one of my friends from, uh, from the hospice, who was a nurse, and I said, hey, I'm about to inject myself with a rabies vaccine. Give me some tips here. And she kind of <laughs> walked me through how to inject myself. Which, Where did
0: you inject yourself?
1: Uh, left deltoid. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she basically said, you know, put your arm on the table, relax your arm, and you're going to have to push hard because you have to pierce the skin. And I, There are plenty of people who give them shots every day, and I just had never done that. And it's one of those things like, I'm not afraid of needles, but I know that I've always had the opportunity to turn my head if I didn't want to see it. Well, yeah. I kind of couldn't do that with this. So it's like, yeah, deep breath and rabies shot into my shoulder.
0: So it sounds like that perspective taking piece of asking your friend for help from the CDC helped you get the confidence to say, I can go over there. Yeah. And, it, you know, something I think about a lot is how like travel really opens your perspective. And this is a word that I guess is coming up a lot. Today. But, you know, whenever you started your career in the corporate world, you probably had this perspective of this is how it's supposed to go. This is the maybe, maybe it was a safe, maybe it wasn't a safe way to go, but this is what I'm supposed to do so that I can be okay. And then, same with travel, we think, well, we can't, I can't go to Africa. I can't go to Israel. I can't go to India because of whatever these reasons are from where we live and the perspective that we've taken. But then, when you talk to somebody else, that the person you met. Was it in Madagascar you met? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the perspectives that other people can provide that is different from the perspective that you grew up with. And then being being able to listen to that perspective and be curious about that, it, it sounds like for you that that has helped you make shift after shift after shift.
1: Yeah, it has. And there's still a huge leap of faith with trust, right? Because mm-hmm. just because some person who I met in an airport in Madagascar says you should go to India... <laughs> Like you still have to trust that. I'm like, okay, is this a, the right thing to do? Or is it the right thing to, to do to go to Zambia or to cycle your bike from Zambia into Zimbabwe and then travel <laughs> through Madagascar? And I think it's like anything else in life, um, repetition breeds confidence. And so the, the more you do things, the, the more experience you have, the more relaxed you get, and so you had mentioned briefly about Israel and in one of my favorite stories about uh, perspective shift happened in Israel. And so I found myself traveling in Israel several years ago. And up until that point, I had watched the news like so many of the people of our people in our country have and around the world, we see all these stories about Israel and the crazy things that happen there, the chaos and some of the terrorism. And I thought to myself, like there's I can't see myself ever going there, but I had met a guy from Israel when I was in Nepal and we hit it off and he was a cyclist as well. And he said, Hey, if you ever find yourself with some time on your hands, you should come to Israel and stay with my family and I. And so I spent maybe an hour with him and a year and a half later, I reached out to him and I said, Hey, Yuval, this is Jerry. We met back in in Nepal. I'd love to come visit you. I didn't know him from anybody and he didn't know me, but he invited his, his home to me, shared his home with me and his family. And it felt like when I met him at the airport, like I was seeing one of my brothers, he gave me a big hug and it was incredible. And then along the way he said, well, I'd also like to do some of the route with you maybe three days. So I thought that'd be great to have someone local show me around Israel. So we took a bus from his house in the middle of Of the country up to the north near the the Syrian border. And we cycled for like three days and he split off and and he went down. And so then I was by myself and I discovered this group called Bikepacking Israel. Hmm. And so I threw a little post out there. I said, Hey, my name is Jerry. I'm from the US. I'm going to be traveling in this region. I'd love to meet some people and have a coffee or a tea and just talk because for me traveling isn't about how the mountains that you travel over or the deserts you travel through it's the connections it's the people mm-hmm. and so i didn't hear anything and i'm traveling for like three days and i'm seriously within touching distance of the the border wall into lebanon and there are armored up humvees that are patrolling the street there are guys walking around with full camo gear and machine guns and after a while of being there it just becomes a perspective shift like it's just it's no big deal it, it would it would be the same as seeing somebody getting off the bus with a briefcase on the way to work seeing somebody with a machine gun up in israel like it, it was the same and so i pull into this this coffee shop to fill up some water and i'm dirty i'm disheveled i've been cycling and up there for 3 days and i haven't had a shower and the guy behind the counter kicks my water bottle and kind of turns his head sideways and he looks at me and he says are you jerry <laughs> and i thought what?
0: What is and happening? I'm looking,
1: and I'm looking for cameras, thinking like, "Where's, where's the ruse here? Where's the game?" And I said, "Yeah." And he says, "Hold on." He reaches into his pocket, grabs his phone, and hands me his phone. And there's a voice on the other end and says, "Hey, man, do you need a place to sleep tonight?" And I thought, "Yeah, I do," because you really can't camp in a military zone in a border. So, yeah, where, where can I camp? He said, "No, no, no. Give me your phone number. I'm going to drop a pin on your phone." Follow it to my house. My neighbor will unlock the door and let you in. I'm not home. I'll be back in probably two weeks. Stay as long as you want. If you're there and I get back, great. If not, safe travels. Oh, and by the way, do you need my Wi-Fi password? And I was thinking to myself, this is incredible. I've never met this person, never will meet this person. I'm in this very contentious region. And this person who is a complete stranger offered his home to me with no ulterior motive. And so it just... It just flipped on this light switch to me that no matter where I've been and I've and I've cycled through 18 countries, people are just people, and that's just the takeaway.
0: Yeah, I mean the bike is such a great connector to yeah. you know an international family, and I haven't done bike packing like you have, but I've done you know races around the world and just having that common connection of the bike. For some reason, I don't know what's so sticky about it or what's so inclusive about it. At least in my experience and it sounds like in your experience as well but it's it's super special and that's such a cool thing about having you know a hobby or an obsession or whatever you want to call what we do as a way to connect the world and i just wish that people would look for more ways to you know be connected instead of divisive and even within the cycling community people can be divisive like oh i i race gravel or i ride gravel and you ride <laughs> a mountain bike or you're a roadie or you know divisiveness is something that people Will do, but then it's important to think big picture, coming back to talking about big picture of hey, like two wheels is awesome. And around the world people recognize each other as a fellow person for ride riding a bike.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When I was in India, there I saw this mural painted on a wall and it simply read, Four Wheels moves the body, two wheels moves the soul.
0: Mm, and that's cool.
1: It just resonated with me because probably like you bikes have always been a part of my life even when I was four years old growing up in rural Michigan on farm roads uh gravel roads and it's just this sense of freedom this sense of connection you'd get together with all your friends you just go ride bikes and I remember I got my first real bike and it was this it was a Schwinn 10 speed we just call them 10 speeds and not road bikes just because they had 10 speeds <laughs> yeah, it was it was black and it was gold, and I went for a bike ride, my first real ride, and it was five miles to my friend's house, and five miles when you're ten, eleven years old may have been five hundred miles. Like it was the biggest mm-hmm. thing I could ever <laughs> I could ever decide to do, and so I had a water bottle full of Mountain Dew and a in a pocket full of Snickers because it was Michigan in the eighties, and that's just how we did it, and it was the most freeing, liberating experience of of my childhood, just being on bikes and yeah to your point like I think there is something very inclusive very sticky very curious about bicycles that when when I'm traveling through countries people see a bike and it's different than if I just got off a bus traveling that way versus getting off my bike and I'd roll through a rural village everybody wants to to come talk to me and they're so curious where are you going where are you from how many miles are you going and it's amazing just to see people get so excited about cycling. I mean, think of the, the passion that it instills in me just, just talking about it right now. And I'm sure all of your experiences with racing.
0: That's so funny. So you're talking about, you know, your experiences traveling by bike, but logistically, people probably aren't thinking like in their head, picturing what that looks like. Can you talk yeah. about the legit? Cause you're not just like traveling somewhere with a bike and staying in a hotel and like mapping out your ride on Strava to return back to the hotel. Like you're actually bike packing and bike touring. Can you talk about what the those logistics are like? And maybe a few stories of things that like maybe things that didn't go well because I'm sure people are curious and as am I. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So people are traveling either with their road bike on pavements or with a gravel bikes So it looks like a road bike with a little bit knobby tires, but I travel on a steel hardtail mountain bike with front suspension because it just gives me greater versatility. So there have been times that I've hiked my bike six hours over a 17,000 foot mountain pass, which most people would say, good God, man, why would you do that? And it's just the places that I can get to with this bike. And so it was interesting because as I mentioned, I'm very much was a type A sort of control freak. I'd like to say I'm more of an A minus right now. I'm I'm sort of becoming a little more relaxed as I get older and as I've had different perspectives. When I first started traveling by myself, I needed to know how many miles I was going to cycle each day, what my stopping point was, where's the next village, where am I going to get water, where am I going to get food? Because the places I'm traveling are pretty remote in either Kyrgyzstan or Morocco or Israel or Nepal, different places. And so when I met my Swiss friends, I remember traveling with them. And it was the first time I'd travel with anybody on a bike. And so the first couple of days I would say to them, hey, uh, so where are we trying to get to today? And what's our plan? And I remember Evo, the husband, would reply back to me, quite matter-of-factly, because he's Swiss and they just don't have much humor. He would say <laughs> to me, he would say to me, sorry for any Swiss people listening out there. He would say to me, Well, we're gonna ride our bikes until about five o'clock and then we're gonna look for a place to sleep. And I was like, oh, this whole concept of no direction, no stopping point was so foreign to me. And I just I I couldn't wrap my mind around it. But gradually as I as I got into that mental state, it was it was freeing of my of my mind and this this need to to vice grip everything and and know what's gonna happen and have control. And so that was probably one of my first really fascinating tales about just relaxing my grip and just letting life happen and not Mm -hmm. trying to control everything.
0: Something that I've been thinking about while you've been telling some of these stories is how when you almost don't have an end point, like a finish line for the day or a a script to follow, it forces you to be more present in what you're doing while you're doing it because you're, you're probably thinking more along the lines of, where am I now instead of where am I going to be? Because if you don't know where you're going to be, then you're not thinking about it as much.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. What a very existential concept. Yeah. It, uh, it. It. It was. It was. It was very freeing. It was very liberating to just see where the day would would take me. And many times when I was by myself or when I was with the Swiss, we would just end up. Some place to be, we'd find a place to camp. Some days we would roll through a tiny village in the Himalayas and somebody would come up to us and just ask us, do you want to come sleep in my house? And that whole concept, because this was before I had that encounter with, uh, in, in Israel, it just seemed crazy that someone who doesn't know me and I'm clearly not from around there, they would say, Hey, come stay in my house. And so I, as I've come back to Colorado, it's it's given me this sort of paradigm shift too. wow, what would I have done if I saw someone who just looked disheveled, dirty, tired, definitely not around here from someplace foreign? Would I go up to them? Would I go out of my way, which happened to me so many times, would I go out of my way to approach that person and say, hey, you look hungry, come have a meal with me. Or hey, do you need a place to sleep tonight? Come stay in my guest room. And so I've actually started to do that more now, where I'm a host for this organization called Warm Showers. And so there are people who come through Breckenridge, where I live, they're tra- traveling either on the Great Divide routes, the, the Trans America routes, or the Colorado Trail, and they'll stop and I'll invite them into my house and they'll come in and they can take a shower, they can do laundry, I'll feed them, they can sleep. And it's just been this really amazing opportunity for reciprocity.
0: Yeah, and again, coming back to that, seeing humanity in people and in the mm. unfamiliar, because I think a lot of times—I mean, I'm guilty of this. Like, I'll see somebody that looks unfamiliar, and I'll immediately think they're that's a threat, instead sure. of coming at it from a point of compassion. And, and that's something that I'm really working on myself. And it's really great to hear that story that you just mentioned.
1: Yeah, as I mentioned, like people, people are just people. People have asked me weren't you ever afraid when you were in this country or in this area Yeah I
0: was going to ask you that like how yeah
1: So it's it's the two
0: questions that
1: I get on repeat is one how many miles did you ride and mm-hmm. the answer is quite honestly I have no idea I've never mm-hmm. I don't have a Strava account. I never tracked anything in my entire life, even when You're I was not going to post
0: at the end of the year. How <laughs> many miles?
1: <laughs> right. This was this was my miles. This was my verts. Uh, yeah. Even when I was racing bikes, mountain bikes and cross, I I never I never trained that way. In which maybe is why I never went on to to further accolades with my racing. But. When I was traveling, bike traveling, I just, I never, I never looked at those stats. So it it just never really mattered to me. It was all about, as you said, just being present in the day and seeing where the day, the road, the path takes me. And the second question is, were you ever afraid? And the answer I can say unequivocally is no, not, not for a single minute. And I get that, that I, I have a different perspective because I'm a white male and as a female, I, I got to believe it would be a different perspective. Um, people might look at me differently. So I don't want to say that it might not be scary because my experiences aren't everyone's experiences. But for me personally, I've never had anyone approach me with anything outside of kindness and generosity and curiosity.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you let go of that control piece? Because <laughs> so, I mean, like as a female, some of the things that you have said, I would to myself thinking of it, I, I would be too afraid to try that. And that might just be, again, my perspective because of how things I've seen and how I've, you know, whatever it might, it may not even be a real truth to that. However, that's my reality. But yeah, like, how do you have that sense of let go of that control? Because for me, I like having that control as well. Like what you said, <laughs> I, I, I'm i I'm still more of the, I, I used to be a type A plus And I would say now I'm like just <laughs> A, I'm not, I'm not, I'm aspiring A minus. How do you let go of that control?
1: Well, you have definitely. I think your A plus has served you. Like you've been a very accomplished cyclist. So I, I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I think to get to a certain level, you have to have that sort of drive and that that need for control. And and I had it. I just I didn't. It didn't get me to where I wanted to go. So I'm going to interrupt a- real
0: quick and say I, I don't always think that that need for control is a, will get you very far because that need for control. Can hold you back in so many ways. It could prevent you from having experiences. It could prevent you from having self compassion. I mean, there's so many ways that control can be detrimental. And being able to be more flexible, I think, is really a gift. So, yeah, how do you? How did you become more flexible?
1: It's it's a work in progress, man. Like it's (laughs) I'm still not there. Uh, Yeah, it's it's one of those things that the more I travel to say places like India where there's this sense of organized chaos. <laughs> uh, there's just so many things that are just way beyond your control. And if you if you try to control India, like it's just gonna eat you up. <laughs> and so I mean this is there's there's a quote that I like and obviously I'm I'm a fan of quotes, but um there's this quote from I think, I don't know, the 80s maybe and it's it's ironically or interestingly enough, it's a Mike Tyson quote. And his uh, quote is, everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. And what that simply means, like, you know, it's it's a bit of a graphic quote, but what that simply means is you have to adapt. When things don't go your way, you can, you can have all the planning that you want, but at some point it's not gonna go your way. And so think about life, like this need for control. There's, there's this point where you have to just sort of relax your grip, because if you don't, it, it's just gonna burn you out. And we can't control things that happen to us on the most day-to-day basis. The only thing we have control over, as you probably know, is how do you respond? And yeah. when when life kind of throws you down, yanks the rug out from you, how do you get up? How do you decide how you're going to respond? How resilient are you?
0: Yeah, your attitude, your actions, and your effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. i thought a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, because I'm I'm sure that there are there are races that you've been in that didn't maybe go as the way that you wanted, and there are there are so many aspects of racing or of life that are that are physical, but as I'm sure that you'll agree, so much of racing, probably even more in the physical, especially on the endurance side, is, is the mental.
0: Is... Especially when you're in a less developed country, where, like yeah. you said, you're talking about India. I was laughing to myself because I've thought about some of the races I've done that, you know, there aren't in Europe, there are more of these like, you know, far off uh-huh. places where people might not dream of riding a bike. And sometimes things don't go to schedule. Um, I'll share a fun, just a fun quick story of I was First. in Costa Rica for this race. It was a I think it was a 100 mile mountain bike race. It was supposed to start at 5am. But stereotyping, you know, the Co- Costa Ricans are late. So they didn't start the race at 5am. So all of us are just standing there freezing waiting to go, you know, and there's people still driving in parking and the race isn't starting. And You know, a lot of people would think, "Well, I ate my pre-race meal at this time, and I did my warm up at this time, and I don't know when the race is going to start now." And yeah, like, I I, this this is actually bridging me to a a question I wanted to ask you because in your book, a lot of the stories that you share are from these farther off, you know, places where people probably wouldn't want to go ride their bike. What is intriguing about those places to you? Because I didn't see anything in there about like, you know. Switzerland, like going to Switzerland or, or, you know, not to knock on just to continue knocking on Switzerland, I guess, but
1: you know, yeah. In Switzerland for the record, it is not in the book, but, <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. There's, there's something about going to a place that is so different. So outside of my comfort zone, my first ever bike trip was to, was to Spain. And I remember my first ever trip outside the United States was to Germany. So places that are not too dissimilar to the United States. And I had a friend from college, from CU Boulder, and she was living over in, in, in Germany, and I went to visit her right after graduation. And I remember just being so used to my own little myopic world in in Colorado, this little slice of of, of the country, And everything there was different, but instead of saying different, I thought it was weird. It's like, you know, why does that toilet have two flushes? That's weird. Why does the grocery store look like this? That's weird. And finally, she just said, like, it's not weird. It's just different than what you're used to because you've never been outside of the country. And she started calling me culture boy because essentially I had no culture because I had never traveled. And so from there, I just wanted to see everything that was so much different and so the idea of going to Africa was way outside of of my scope of comforts. And then once I got to, yeah, to Africa, to Zambia, to Zimbabwe, like, okay, this isn't so bad. And people here, I don't know what to expect, but they're really nice and they're really friendly. Okay, so what's beyond Africa? How about India? India is so unique and it's without a doubt the craziest place I've ever been in my life. And i have been there three times. And every time I go there, I just got back from a trip there last month. And every time I go there, I think I have it figured out, and it just throws me a curveball, yanks the rug, hits me in the kidneys, and just—I get like, so oh, excited
0: you... when I hear that. Like, yeah, I, I can't wait to go. Like, sign me up.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's—it's. It's, I feel like I'm having like this, 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 this dialogue with India. I'm like, oh, you think you got me figured out? How about this? And like, wham! And she's just like, oh, <laughs> didn't see that coming. And so just this that curiosity, like that's, that zest for life uh, mm-hmm. is just what drives me to these places, and it's not to say that Western Europe isn't amazing, because it definitely is. And, I, and I've been to a few countries, including Switzerland. But something about places that are so far beyond my norm, my comfort zone, just uh, just gives me life.
0: I'm I feel exactly the same way as you, and I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's something called the VIA Institute of Character Strengths, and there's a free quiz people could take, and it basically is about how to live your life amplifying using your character strengths and how to spot them in others. And it sounds like for you, like zest and curiosity, <laughs> like those things are, are really important to you.
1: Uh, so much so. Uh, and I'm going to date myself here because I'm probably, well, I'm about five weeks from my 49th birthday. And that's the first time that I've said that out loud. And it sounds really <laughs> weird. But <laughs> So I grew up watching this movie called Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman. I used to watch that with my dad. And the character Paul Newman, his his uh, his name was Luke in the movie, and he was always sort of pushing the limits of 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 what he was supposed to do, like always questioning authority. And there's this line in there, and I, the, I can't get the accent right, but his the uh, the warden in prison says, "You know what we have here is failure to communicate." It's so my dad would always say that to me when I was a little kid, because every time he would say, "Like this is the rule," because that's what dads say to their sons, and my. <laughs> My answer was always, but why? And so, I mean, you have two little kids and I'm sure at some point they're going to start saying, mommy, why?
0: Oh, he st- my son has started. And I actually, <laughs> like, I mean, maybe it's because he's just started, but I love it when he, when he wants to know why. I just think yeah. it's the best.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so my dad was a Korean war veteran. And so he didn't have this this mindset to question authority because in the war mm. and in the military, you don't question anything. Like this is this is an order, this is an edict, and that's just how it goes. But that wasn't how I was wired. I don't know if it's just genetics. I don't know if it's because of him and it made me to go the opposite direction. But everything that he would say, I was just, why, why, why? I wanted to know why that was. And the answer, because that's the way it is, just didn't work for me. And Mm -hmm. so that's, you're right. I have this, this inborn, innate curiosity to always see why things are, what's around that corner, what's over the top of that mountain pass, what's in that country over there. Like, it's just... I just want to know. Like the world is this big, beautiful, fascinating place. And the more I see of it, man, it's just it's addictive, the more I want of it.
0: I have one last question for you. And it's ah. about something you said at the very beginning. And you said something about having a vision of success and happiness and how that mm. shifted for you. So currently, you know, as you sit five weeks from turning forty-nine, what is <laughs> what is your current vision of success and happiness? What do you ah. aspire for the next while until, you know, you continue growing <laughs> or wow. as you continue growing, I guess.
1: <laughs> I feel like uh, I'm in a job interview. That's a good one. Like, where do you see yourself in five years? That's a great question. Well, um, well,
0: and and not even like an outcome place where you see yourself, but like, yeah. what does success and happiness mean to you now? Because whenever you were younger, maybe you're, it sounded like you success of you're, definition of success and happiness was the typical path of you know go to school, get the girl, get the house, blah, 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 which is, is yeah. awesome. And for a lot of people that does make them happy. But what makes you happy now?
1: What makes me happy? Um, I am very fortunate to live in Colorado. And mm. I live in the mountains, a beautiful place. I know that you live in a beautiful place. And this is, this is honest truth. I wake up every day and I say to myself, I get to live here and i just i love where i live i have a great community of friends my family is close to me and i am just enjoying life and enjoying talking to people like you on your show like you i've listened i've been following your show for a while now and you have always had guests who are very accomplished very inspiring individuals and i just feel so so honored to be one of your guests and so i just <laughs> want to spend time talking to people hopefully making a positive influence on their life and just overall being a good guy. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, I don't have those same monetary goals about this car or this house. And I don't know, I think traveling on a bike, (laughs) having two pair of socks, one pair of underwear, one pair of shoes and all this stuff, just this simplicity. It's just changed my perspective of the things that are important to me. And The things that are important to me, honestly, are experiences and connections. And beyond that, everything else is just gravy.
0: Yeah, I think the currency of happiness... I actually wrote an article Mm. on this a while ago, like probably a couple years ago now. But yeah, the currency of happiness is different for everybody. But a lot of the the well-being research actually shows that happiness... Well, the word happiness is also a, a word that people don't like using because happiness happens in small moments. It's not like an overall state that people can have. But it comes from connection, and it comes from meaning, and it comes from purpose. And it really sounds like you've made huge shifts in your life and had a lot of courage and a lot of openness and a lot of flexibility to find this path and to inspire others to find their path as well. So congratulations on you know this this life that you've had so far, on this amazing book that you've written for people to connect with, and for all the things that you're going to do in the future that none of us know what those are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Thank you. Those, those words mean a lot to me.
0: And where can people find you? Where can people find your book and get to know more Jerry? And where can people stay at your house if they're passing through?
1: <laughs> uh, great question. So I actually have a website. It is just jerrycopac.com. There's a bunch of stories on there that were my initial blogs that somehow turned into a book and there's links to buy the book and you can also send me an email and give me a call or send me a text and yeah I definitely have a guest room if you ever find yourself in Breckenridge Colorado
0: cool and yeah I'll be in Breckenridge next summer again so hopefully you'll be in town and our paths will cross
1: yes so thanks again
0: Jerry and yeah I really appreciate everything
1: Sonia thanks for interviewing me I appreciate your time
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode and pick up a copy of The World Spins By by Jerry. Also, make sure you check out our podcast sponsors today. I always promote companies that I use and I use the products first before they even become a podcast ad. So really, I get to just talk about stuff that I like. So check out drinkbivo.com for a lightweight, clean tasting, stainless steel bike water bottle and everathlete.fit for strength and mobility programs that are specifically designed for endurance athletes and that are super fun. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to leave us a rating. I know that it can be a pain and it's hard to remember to do, but it means a lot to us whenever you do that because it helps the show find others and it helps these great guests get their information out to others as well. And if you want to get an occasional email from me, you can sign up at sondialooney.com slash newsletter, where I send out a well-researched article, a thought to ponder for you and some of the podcast episodes that you might have missed. And again, you can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.